<laughs> you know the laughing's very good for you, don't you? You know it does make you feel positive and happy. I can't, I can't stop. Oh, I've got such a stupid story to tell you to to kick this podcast off today. <laughs> Welcome to a little bit of positive. <laughs> Oh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm waiting with bated breath. So I have no idea whether this story is true <laughs> or not, but I'm going to tell it to you because it's, it's worth it for the laugh. A man in Vienna has been fined 500 euros after breaking wind with full intent in front of police. Full intent in front of police, apparently. With full intent. Right, so the intent, right? So the intent was to fart at them. I, I assume, I assume that he was annoyed with them in some way. So, uh, had he been what, 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 what was this circumstances? I need to know. I need details. Okay, the details are: this miscreant was fined uh, for violating public decency, um, <laughs> and this has been defended on Twitter by the Austrian police. They said, of course, no one is reported for accidentally letting one go. You have to say that in your head in an Austrian accidentally. accent. <laughs> accidentally. But in this case, the man had behaved provocatively and uncooperatively. <laughs> provocative fart. Yeah. During the encounter with the officers, he rose from a park bench and he let go a massive intestinal wind, apparently <laughs> with full intent. And of course, oh. our colleagues don't like to be farted at so much. <laughs> Do you know what instantly popped into my head was um, Monty Python's Holy Grail. Yeah. When uh, Don Cleese is the French soldier standing on the on the castle turret. Yeah. And he's saying, I have fart in your general direction. <laughs> yes, a fart in your You general. English pig dogs. <laughs> oh, yeah. That... Oh, my goodness. With full intent, though, that I, lo I love the wording of that. That's that good, really, isn't it? That's Yes, I read that and um, I thought that's a way to open up our podcast. That will that absolutely. Get... And I, I want, I want to know whether he's paid his fine or not, or if he's going to take this further. I really don't know. Over to you. You can, okay, okay, <laughs> Agent GPP. You can do a little okay. bit. Of, you can get a bit of Miss Marpling on that, and you can let us know in the next podcast. <laughs> <laughs> that's a brilliant story it's and a one good story. a very positive one. And like you say, laughter is always a great way to get into being positive. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Laughter and um, and does that lead us into? Does it lead us into our guest at all? Oh, Probably not. Well, no. I was going to say it does actually because I was thinking about um, when you said about farts mm. and uh, and our guest today knows lots about brains and I thought about <laughs> yes. those two words combined make brain fart. Now, yes. I, have you ever experienced brain farts? Because I have them all the time. Well, it's, presumably this is connected to your other podcast, Blank, which is when you, you're grappling mm. for a thought and a word that you know and it, you think it's there in your brain and, and you just can't get to it. So presumably that it's the brain fart. It's just when you go, oh, no, oh, sorry. And I do that a lot. I do that a lot on this podcast, yeah. I think. So, yes, I think... Well, 
likewise, most podcasts, um, um, I, I have, well, I'm having one now, um, <laughs> I have a brain fart. Yeah. And yeah, there are these moments where, yeah, you, it's often because you haven't remembered a word or something. But scientists believe, actually, mm. uh, and the reason we have these brain farts is normally a physical thing. So it could be um, ageing. It could be lack of sleep. Mm. Um, so sleep deprivation, anxiety, alcohol. Mm-hmm. Another thing that helps, you know, or d- being distracted. Now, I think distraction for me, I am definitely someone, I, I often say this to people, I have, uh, my mind is like lots of tabs open on a, a desktop. So I'm always flitting between thoughts. And I think that's for me is what causes a lot of my own brain farts. Right. You're too, you're too switched on to too many things all day, multiple stories. Yes. And yes, well, it does actually, strangely, mm. I don't know how we got from a full intent fart uh, into our guest, but we've made it. Because yeah. Andrew Wright describes himself as a neuro ninja. He's he's a self uh, a self confessed brain nerd, but he has an mm. excellent website that you uh, brought to my attention called Action Your Potential. Mm. And essentially, it is there's a lot about um, how to get the most and work positively with your children in terms of their their mental alacrity. Mm. And he's big into cognitive health. And one of the things that he talks about a lot is sleep, how we all need to sleep. We all need to regenerate ourselves. And sleep is one of those things. And he has lots of other things that we should do every day. These are things, I think it's, it's 12 12 steps uh, in his program. And these are the 12 things that we should all do every day. Sleep, sleeping properly is one of them, playing a musical instrument, all sorts of stuff. I mean, he'll explain it much better than we can. Here he is. Andrew, I wanted to start with something quite light and something quite simple to digest. Who am I? (laughs) Who who are you? Okay. (laughs) Yes. Who am I? I've been reading your web, web, website. It's fascinating. And you do ask this question, who am I? And we're not who we think we are, are we? No, it's wonderful. This is just my favourite topic, Julia. You may have regret asking this question. So um, <laughs> but, so basically, it's beautiful and amazing and special. So that we live in this incredible biological machine, uh, evolved over millions and millions of years. And we don't require any magical thinking to answer the question, who I am. We are special. We are individual. We are all um, our own people. And the reason that we're all different is because our brain builds that architecture as we are growing, as we're developing. And then we reach a certain point quite young in humans where something incredible happens. It is like magic where the connections have reached a point where we arrive at self-awareness and consciousness. So the brain's built a model of its own operation called the self. And that model is incredibly useful. It enables us to uh, reflect, analyze, and be extremely flexible in our responses. So to answer your question as pithily as possible, uh, who we are is our brain generates this model of ourselves. So you decide to move your hand. In fact, what happens is your brain moves your hand and about a third of a second afterwards, milliseconds afterwards, that experience pops into your brain. So we know this from fantastic neuroscience experiments conducted in the late 1980s, which freaked everyone out at the time it was like hang on a minute what happens when we move our hand it seems that the conscious decision to move our hand occurs after the the neurons that move our hand have started uh, firing and that's exactly what happens the 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 brain is making the decisions and we catch up with what the brain's doing that is us we are our brains but we get to experience that in the model that our brain creates and that model 
Um, the best way to think about the model the brain creates, the self, is um, that we're a stowaway in this gorgeous ship of our whole bodies and brains. And um, the captain, there is no boss circuit, is the, the set of neurons that are running the show at a particular time. So if we want to change any aspect of ourselves, the stowaway, the consciousness, has to go and convince the captain that there's some really important new direction that we need to strike off on. Uh, and the way that we do that is that we uh, go back into our brains and we change some structures in our brains, not involving surgery or anything tricky. We just engage in a set of habits that we begin to build the architecture that mean that we bring those habits into being. And I think the problem that a lot of us suffer from is we concrete ourselves in to a little bunker of ourselves. We think we are this sort of person and we confuse opinions with facts and end up kind of stuck in a particular way of being, thinking about ourselves. Uh, whereas actually we should flow, you know, the best place to look really is probably at a toddler. Toddlers are fantastic. You know, if toddlers approach learning in the way that adults approach learning, they would never learn to walk. They'd fall over and they'd mm. say, well, actually, that's clearly not for me. I can't do that. I can't, I can't walk. Um, whereas actually we, we need to kind of get a little bit less kind of this sense of ourselves as unchanging things we are kind of slow moving waterfalls we change continually i've realized i've used loads of metaphors there i'm so sorry ships waterfalls but actually the self <laughs> self is a model the brain builds of its own operation and that is a remembered present it's likely basically saying what are we doing now what's important now and then when we fall asleep at night the brain updates that model with the learning experiences we have. We call that updating sleep. And the next day, the model is ever so slightly different because we've learned some stuff. I mean, absolutely beautiful. The way you've described that, uh, it, it does make me think a little bit of the, the film, the Steve Martin film, the great Steve Martin film, The Man With Two Brains. Yeah. <laughs> or or being John Malkovich. Or yes, <laughs> those yeah. Oh, it was beautiful complexity. You are a self-confessed brain nerd. When did you come to this <laughs> brain nerdery? What was your first sort of, how did you become fascinated with the brain? Uh, kind of the early days, sort of in the kind of late 80s, early 90s, you know, just training to be a teacher and being absolutely staggered that, that what was emerging from brain science didn't really to crop, seem to crop up in teacher training at all actually. So kind of dove into lots of the brain stuff that was around then. So that experiment I referred to, the Benjamin Labette experiment from the late 1980s, we didn't have a very good idea of what consciousness was at that point. Uh, and so that, um, that evidence from that research kind of hung on its own and people were kind of a little bit confused about uh, the brain. But as functional magnetic resonance imaging has kicked in, we've been able to look much more deeply. And so there's been an increasing level of depth. There's so much more to know yet, yeah, so much more to know. But the thing that's frustrated me through my whole teaching career is the inability of the education system, not because of the efforts of teachers or children or parents, but possibly governmental driven opinions about what you know, what was good for them when they were at school um, has led mm. to a situation where we're not focusing uh, um, the, the institution of, of, of schools around the way the brain operates. You know, there are these kind of silos where we kind of think of well-being separate from learning and progress and uh, self-esteem separate from, and they're all interlinked and they're interlinked through this big fat three pound lump of hmm. matter in the top of our heads. And once, you know, we, we can understand that now. I mean, it's not completely clear yet, but there's enough information 
to enable us to act, enact that process. And, you know, 85% of a young person's life is at home. And it's the whole brain of the whole child for the whole day that is the thing we should focus on as a nation. We should focus on absolutely making sure they get incredible teaching and learning experiences at school and they're supported and their pastoral cares looked after but connecting parents with this information and young people themselves to, to, so they can actually get excited they've got you know we're all striving for the latest bit of kit we've got the latest bit of kit we just need to know how it works properly yeah do you think it is actually possible to change the the teaching structure and the education system to accommodate all of our different needs and requirements because we we're all individual we're all incredibly complex individuals is there a one-size-fits-all solution in a school or is that just something that doesn't exist and, and can never exist because it would be too expensive it would require too many different resources to to really meet the needs of every individual child I think, you know, at the extreme ends, absolutely. I think, you know, there are lots of uh, people with complex needs and particular special needs that that will need certain kinds of intervention. But generally, comprehensive education, what is good for for brains is actually good for all brains. So, you know, a needs driven approach to behavior, for example, understanding that generally behavior is an output from an organism that isn't directed maliciously. It's often around that um, individual struggling. So they've got some um, issue that they're struggling with. It might be emotional pain. It might be a lack of connection with caregiver. There's a whole bunch of reasons that drive behavior. And it's actually having a therapeutic approach to behavior management, as an example, that means that you can include far more children. um, And in terms of teaching and learning and pedagogy, that what works for special needs children, because I'm an ex-senco as well, works powerfully for all children. And, you know, learning is a science um, in terms of the process of imbibing information, encoding it. Uh, and we're all different, differentially able to learn th- different things at different rates because of our neural architecture. But wherever we start, we can grow our neural architecture in particular directions. And one of the things that, that stops us doing that is the feeling we get when we do something that's really tricky for our particular flavor of neural architecture. So for me personally, as a child, that was mathematics. So I generated a fairly quick opinion that I was rubbish at mathematics and then then led to a set of activities and actions which didn't help me improve I basically just you know didn't really work very hard didn't do any practice whatsoever got lots of CMEs ended up being 23rd in the class the entire time and I didn't do precisely what I needed to do which was practice my maths often actually little and often practice to break down the barriers but I, I believed that I couldn't do my maths therefore I didn't do my maths and you know I eventually got the required uh, O-level to go to university but after about the fifth attempt and that was just from a brilliant therapeutic maths teacher that basically said that's all a load of guff your brain's generating you can do this you just need to practice it a bit more Um, so you know to answer your question I think there's lots of ways that we can develop a school system that that can float all boats but actually it's also about being very open and authentic and saying to families and kids you are involved in this process as well we seem to i don't know if it's a consumer culture but we seem to have downloaded learning to the experience in school you know 
schools get kids to read schools get kids to mm. to uh, learn their science mm. and actually it you know 85 percent of a child's life's out outside school there's lots of things children themselves can do and parents can do that don't require degrees pedagogy or anything to improve the kind of learning and progress of children something struck me something there you were saying about the maths thing and it, it reminded me of the sort of growth mindset you know the carol dweck um, style stuff is that something that you you're alluding to there yeah so carol dweck stuff and the beauty of all the psychology stuff is you dive into the brain underneath it is a deep explanation of, of the growth mindset so that growth mindset really is basically saying um you know if you have an attitude that you can improve if you practice you are then you then engage in practice and you then improve and what we see in terms of neural architecture is you know, once there's a fantastically brilliant experiment they did where they asked people to play the piano for 20 minutes a day, some people to imagine playing the piano for 20 minutes a day, and a group of other people just to think about a piano for 20 minutes a day. And then they looked at the area in their brain uh, via brain scanning that controls their fingers. And just after two weeks of practicing the piano uh, or imagining practicing the piano, uh, the white matter in the area of the brain, which is the myelin that supports the the, the neurons um, and and makes them carry electrical impulses more quickly. So a, a, an example of kind of the physical impact of practice on the brain after just 20 minutes of uh, playing pianos or thinking about playing the pianos for two weeks, they'd increase their myelination in those areas of the brain. The people thinking about pianos, nothing had happened. The people that were imagining playing a piano saw an 80% increase in their myelination. The people playing the piano had the greatest impact. So, you know, the, the, basically our brain responds to what we do. Whatever we do with our brain, our brain will start encoding that stuff. Brains encode information on the following basis. They encode dangerous information. So stuff we need to avoid. Stuff that's interesting to us, they encode because it connects with um, already constructed memories and then repeat information. Um, and, and then everything else, everything else, 70% of our experiences, the brain forgets every day. Forgetting is an active process. There are chemicals in the brain that actively rub out connections that aren't being used that often. So it's a dynamic power grid. So if you want to hold it in your head, you're going to have to use it. So, you know, I have kids that say, I've, I understand my fractions. I can, I can add fractions. I can do that. But if you don't practice it for the next few weeks, even though you remember being able to do it, when I ask you, can you do fractions? You say yes. When I ask you to do a fraction, to add some fractions, you go, hang on a minute. I thought I could do it, but I, I can't seem to remember because you haven't encoded it. You remember the fact you could do it, but that doesn't encode it. That doesn't, you know, look at pianists, look at um, tennis players. They're practicing every day, every day mm -hmm. to make sure they've got those structures as, as, as slick as possible. Gosh, so it is that imprint it to, to imprint things on your brain. You, you have to exercise the brain. What do you think about those? Um, what do you think about those uh, apps and, and video programs that, that say that you're exercising your brain, like the, the Japanese maths things and or brain training, things brain like that. training? Yeah. What do you think about those? I think the evidence is still out there in some of those places. I think, you know, there's some there's some interesting kind of um, uh, bits of evidence that point to their some efficacy but you know for example uh doing sudoku uh, is probably as efficacious as some of those kind of those brain training things there's some really interesting ones for example there's an interesting game that is used for um 
children who suffer meltdowns, children on autistic spectrum who can't manage their emotions sometimes and feel overwhelmed that links to their pulse rate and they're playing a game where they've got to try and uh, pilot a spaceship through um, a kind of battle arena. So they're playing a, quite a good game. And if they're kind of getting, uh, if their pulse rate's very high, uh, they, they they get kind of, they've got much less of a, a sort of protective shield around their ship. So slowly but surely, as they're playing the game, practicing breathing exercises and those sorts of things, they can, the, the game responds to some of the sort of biometrics that they're generating. So I think there's, there's it's a really interesting area. I think there's, there's something in it, but I'm not convinced yet that some of the stuff um, has actually got much efficacy behind it. You know, they're just, there's a lot of, unfortunately with brain science, there's a lot of stuff that left the traps well before the evidence base was secure, like brain gym. You know, we've still got the, mm crazy stuff around visual auditory kinesthetic learners floating around schools none of that stuff's got any particular good evidence behind it but it so there's there's a there's an enthusiasm which i've absolutely got but it has to be tempered with actually hang on a minute what's the evidence um yeah slightly going back i remember watching um one of your webinars and you talked about um how anthropologically we are naturally negative beings and obviously this podcast is about positivity and how we can change, you know, how sort of determined by us about positivity. How, how can we actively change our mindsets with regards to negativity? Yeah, so I, th- I think that, that it's about, it's about uh, developing a, a, a compassionate approach to our own brain's output, understanding the mission of some of those circuits and, 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 and approaching them in a kind of supportive way. So, you know, the, the thing that kept our ancestors alive was being cautious and nervous, uh, because if that noise over there was a predator, it was best to assume it was a predator and avoid the predator in the first place. So you end up being much more cautious, much more nervous, and the brain ap- applies kind of negative emotions to those events in the world that might cause problems. They may not cause problems, but as a result of that, you know, if you take a simple example of a, a, a huge issue for our ancestors, falling out with your tribe mates was, you know, cataclysmic. You were possibly going to get yeah. excised from the tribe. You'd be on the African savannah, puny human, wouldn't be able to survive. Uh, so therefore, you know, the brain uh, links um, uh, events to do with social conflict. It, it, it exaggerates those enormously, amplifies those because of the, the huge valency they had in the ancestral past. And so nowadays, when we experience uh, social conflict, it isn't a life and death situation. It just still feels awful. Uh, you know, people say, I hate conflict, you know, but actually everyone hates conflict because their brains really dislike falling out with people because it had such survival value. And so what in, in order to accommodate that response, we need to understand that those bits of the brain are always going to generate their output, but we don't have to invest completely in it. We don't want to ignore it. We want to understand what the brain's doing. And, you know, so when we're having some social difficulty, our brain will generate cognitive distortions, automatic negative thoughts, you know, um, labeling, catastrophizing, imagining all things are going to be awful and imagining all manner of potential kind of scenarios. Uh, What the brain is doing there is chucking up highly charged emotional negative predictions about what might possibly go wrong if you don't act now. But what that action is of the brain, that is the emotional circuit sending an alert out across the brain to the cognitive rational circuits to say there's an issue that's developing in the social world. We're going to need your help to resolve this issue. We need to get you engaged in that. 
So that emotional alert gets the cognitive architecture. You can't but, but help but notice the fact you're thinking, oh, my God, what's going to happen now? So that gets the, that cognitive circuit engaging. But um, it's really important that we give the cognition time to come up with solutions and don't run around kind of in a in a panic trying to kind of resolve the things. The problem for us in the social world nowadays is if, if you have got some issues developing with people, you don't live with them. Whereas in the ancestral environment, you live with everyone. You were in that group of 150. Mm. So if you had cheesed someone off, you would know about it within about 20 minutes. Whereas now, yeah. you know, you have a conversation on a Friday and then you start fretting about it Friday night. You might not see them till Monday morning at work or when you go into school on Monday. Mm. And then you've had, you know, you've had sort of 48, 72 hours to fret and steam about it. Um, and it may, may not be anything at all. It might be they were frowning because their dog's been unwell this morning and they had to rush them to the vet. So, you know, and that's there's this mismatch in modern life between this old architecture that's just going to do its stuff. It's going to do its stuff. We need to understand that it's doing that stuff and take a position, which is I can see what you're doing and I understand that, that there's a potential worry there. But let's get a bit of a let's get become a bit of a detective about it. Let's apply some of the principles of cognitive behavior therapy and just question, you know, really, is that catastrophizing version of reality? Is that really likely to be the, the case? Is that? Uh, and then search evidence in the world, try and come up with some evidence that supports um, a, a kind of more balanced response. And we talk a lot in the webinars for kids about balance, really. The balanced response oh. is the emotions and the cognition knitting together in a way that enables you to chart your way forward. Um, and so in terms of, you know, not just having, you know, I'm always suspicious of kind of the happy, clappy, positive kind of mindset all of the time i don't think that's possible mm. i don't think that's realistic and it's upsetting to suggest it i think the be the best response is to, to is to kindly and compassionately firing empathy circuits in your prefrontal cortex which we know exist those empathy circuits and compassion circuits towards yourself and go i can see that there's some aspects of me that are struggling now in this situation there's you know there's some emotional pain happening here uh, and you know in terms of emotional pain we know that emotional pain is registered in the same area as the brain as physical pain is and so um while when we've got a physical wound there's a wound that can be cleaned and tended when we've got an emotional wound there's a wound in our head that we can't see so we have to practice emotional hygiene to enable our cognitive architecture to process um often non-verbal emotions so to be able to explore and explain our emotions um to ourselves through a process of emotional um, hygiene every day asking ourselves questions and what I say to parents and kids is just sit down around 6 30 in the evening and just ask yourself these questions what happened today um, how did I feel what emotions were involved and often that's a quick conversation because it's like well it's kind of all right and it was fine um, but sometimes something happens and and it's really getting a brain to be able to say I felt sad today because I felt angry today because and actually it's all right. It's important. Those emotions are important. You know, that set of avoid emotions, they're there for a reason. You know, if we're angry, if we're sad, it's flagging us. It's flagging us something up in the world. There's something that's happened in the world. And it's important to understand what that is, what the, the triggers for that were and what the solutions are. There are solutions available in their solution focused circuits in the top bit of our brain. But crucially for young people, in other people's prefrontal cortexes as well. 
they've got solution circuits. They've had different experiences chatting to other people, talking through those experiences, give us access to other people's experiences. And we know in terms of neuroscience that the prefrontal cortex's role in calming the anxious brain um, is involved. The prefrontal cortex soothes the amygdala, calms the amygdala down with solutions, and it literally changes the valency of some key circuits in the amygdala. So as we go through life having experiences, our prefrontal cortex gets more and more experiences to draw upon to soothe the amygdala down. So I say to young people that, you know, think back to those moments when you were a little bit nervous, excited, but nervous about something. So the first time you stayed away from home, you went on year six camp. You might have found in the days leading up to that, that you were really worried about it. And you maybe even didn't want to go, but you, you managed to go, your parents supported you, you uh, supported yourself, your teachers supported you, you went. And then after about 24 hours, it was amazing and fantastic. And your parents are sitting at home fretting that you're still a bit worried and you're having the time of your life. Your prefrontal cortex has calmed your amygdala down and said, actually, this new experience, which brains are naturally nervous about new experiences because they don't know what's Mm going to happen. So they experience uncertainty. And in the uncertainty, you know, from our ancestral past, there might be a huge kind of mortal problem in that uncertainty. Nowadays, that problem has been removed because we're, you know, much more kind of sorted and civilized and we're not being hunted by lions uh, regularly. And so therefore, actually, once you have those experiences, your prefrontal cortex calms your amygdala down. So the, the way to build those coping strategies is to have new experiences. Go to that party in a socially distanced way nowadays, but go to that party with those people that you're, you don't know very well that you're a bit worried about. Go to that, um, go on, on that n- night away when you're, you know, when you're- you Push yourself. Kid. Exactly. But in a way that you can cope with, that you're, you know, not free. You know, and, and this is the other thing I say to parents a lot is we can't mandate how that feels inside that person's head. They might have more- of the architecture of anxiety than we have they might have a bigger amygdala so they may feel much more risk um, about a certain situation than we do so we can't belittle it but we can help anyone to break down that fear into a small chunk that is is um respondable to so you know a very very shy child that i worked with a while ago just practicing going into a shop and buying her favorite chocolate bar working out the script for the conversation with the person behind the till, working out how she was going to manage the queue um, in in terms of what she would do in the queue, where she would look and how she would manage that. Just getting very nerdy about stepping into what, you know, the psychologists call desirable difficulties, um, which cause the brain architecture to expand. I mean, it's just so fascinating hearing you talk about all these things. Um, I want to ask you about neuro ninjas. What is one uh, and how do you become one? Yeah, so uh, Neuro Ninjas. So, you know, about 18 months uh, ago, I had the opportunity, and this is, just shows my positive mindset, uh, scare quotes, yeah. I had the opportunity to take voluntary redundancy. Um, and I took it because I just wanted to do this. So th- so what we did, we set up a company, Action Your Potential, to show the level of nerdiness. And Action Potential yeah. is an electrical impulse traveling down a neuron. So our company is Action Your Potential. Take your action potentials and do something really amazingly positive with your life. And... Actually, the mission for our company is to help everyone, parents and children particularly, but teachers as well, to become neuro ninjas, which means you live in your brain, understanding how it works, what Mm. it's doing, 
and you can you've got a choice then about your response you don't have to agree with the negative voice that tells you you're no good at maths everyone else can do it and you're stupid you can question it and you can respond rather than react so it's about emotional cognitive agility and flexibility because as you say it's the, our understanding of our own sense of self comes alive and and that's crucial to managing ourselves if, if we don't have that understanding we can't we can't manage no exactly and 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 there's really strong evidence from both education and um psych- psychological support for people metacognition understanding thinking about your thinking and mentalizing thinking about your uh, emotional experiences cognitive behavior therapy hugely powerful evidence base that actually when you give that model to go back to the beginning of our conversation when you give the model that the brain generates of itself very good evidence about how it operates and works it's able to improve its efficiency its productivity its enjoyment and engagement of its own experience um, you know, and brains aren't always very good at, de- at recognizing what's their, what is the source of their discontent. You know, one of my favorite words is uh, hangry from I think it was the Oxford English Dictionary 2015 word of the year, because it sums up perfectly a brain's inability to work out why it's so angry. You know, so many children come home from school very stroppy and upset with their parents. And all they need is to have a few biscuits and build up their kind of and actually you know, there's a fascinating study in America where they looked at um, high court judges hearing parole before lunch and after lunch. And the judges before lunch let less, far less people out uh, on parole because they were grumpy, because they were hungry. And hungry. <laughs> yeah. Then the people after lunch that had, had a nice meal when they were looking at uh, the, the parole um, people and thinking, yeah, OK, you're OK, you can go out um, on parole. So, you know, the, the mission for us really is to take the brain science and say, actually, if we can give the model your brain generates of its own operation much better information, even if you don't act on it now, you can't go back to the naive state. So, you know, you, you think about kind of health science, five fruit and vegetables or the, the change that went uh, underwent when we moved away to uh, and fully understand the impact of smoking. Once you understand the impact of those things, then it gives you much more of an argument to go back to their earlier analogy for the stowaway to go and argue with the captain and say, Oi, we need to change our behavior. I can see the benefit of an exercise habit now, not simply for my cardiovascular system, but actually it grows brain cells exercise. So why wouldn't you do it? I know it's a bit annoying and we don't like being hot and sweaty, but actually, you know, we need to do that for our kind of longevity and, and, and our health. It grows brain cells. Yeah, so that, so basically, when you exercise, really interesting research to do with the prefrontal cortex, particularly. Uh, there's a neuroscientist in the US called Wendy Suzuki. She's got a brilliant TED talk where she looks at this. But basically, um, when you exercise, your brain generates a hormone called BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which encourages neurons to sprout dendrites, which are connections. So, and the more connections you've got available. Uh, to plug into other neurons the the more kind of cognitive reserve you've got as well so not simply in terms of physical but also attention engagement um the ability to kind of um maintain your cognitive reserve as you age uh, exercise is incredibly important for brains and their structure which is reflected uh, in a lot of the blue zones around the world. So the blue zones are, of course, those areas of the world. There's some in Costa Rica and in Italy and in Greece where the population live to be well over 100, but a healthy 
over 100. And the, the common denominator amongst all of the blue zones, they all have their various different but healthy diets in their own way. They all have a sense of community and they're all very active still well into their hundreds. They go swimming every day in Greece or they all go for a communal walk together in Japan or they have their gardens. Activity, physical activity is a very important part of um, of maintaining their health in, in yeah, older it, age. It, no, exactly. And that you're absolutely right. And so that's one of the center pieces of the Neuro Ninja work. So the first step to becoming a Neuro Ninja is understanding that well-being is a skill. And there are 12 activities to build that best model of yourself in your brain every day. So there's sleep and exercise and healthy eating and healthy drinking in terms of making sure you have enough water, not drinking alcohol. Um, then there's mindfulness and mind wandering. And then there's managing your emotions, walking outside in nature and um, then listening to music, connecting with friends and family, uh, gratitude and kindness, um, engaging in activities important to your life's purpose. So that's uh, Chick Sentmihai, that Hungarian psychologist's notion of flow, which I'm sure you heard of, and 12, Rock 12 is learning, cr uh, creating and playing. So we say that actually to be a neuro ninja, you need to prioritize your rest as much as you do your work. If your brain is going to learn, that struggle and effort for the brain. It needs well to be well rested. And deliberate rest, the 12 rocks of well-being, should take about two-thirds of your day. You should engage in deliberate rest. In the 24-hour period, two-thirds of that should be deliberate rest to enable you to do the deliberate work that moves your life forward. I like that, deliberate rest. Mm. Desirable difficulties and deliberate rest. Those are my my, my two favourite things you've said so far. Well, actually, probably not true. Loads of good stuff you've said so <laughs> far. But deliberate rest is, I'm now going to say that, I need a lion, I need some deliberate rest. Yeah, exactly. Well, I'm thinking we're always on, aren't we? We're always on, though, these days, with obviously with technology, and I know kids obviously starting to get into sort of they're starting to get into social media and stuff in their teen teen years for teenagers finding it harder to switch off though yeah i think it is because you know their social life and 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 you know lockdown and pandemic has kind of amplified that experience their connection mm. with their friends uh, and you know there's there's fear of missing out and all of those sorts of things but it comes through that that media so it's talking to young people about just balance and you know there are lots when you there's a really interesting survey by the Royal Society back in 2016, looking at um, young people's kind of own response to social media. And they recognise the mood impact that social media has on, on them if they're on it for a long period of time. But there are benefits uh, to connection, to finding your tribe, to being included. Uh, and it's just about balance, I think. It's about making sure that you have downtime. And that's why we made the rocks, really, because it's a nice, easy list. Uh, it's all free. You can do it very easily. Uh, and, you know, we give people lots of examples. We try and encourage neuro ninjas to tell us how they do their rocks. So if you're a shift worker, mm. how do you get your rocks in? If you're a busy teacher or a busy nurse, how do you get your rocks in? If you're a year six kid, how do you do your rocks? And so it's to engage people in this idea of celebrating rest in a positive way and saying there are these activities that every brain needs because we we fetishize work and you know it's all about being productive and working harder but actually no it's not you know some of the biggest ideas that have changed um hum humanity have, have, have resulted from rest you know you'll know giles as, as, a, as a creator you know the, the the downtime the kind of latent processing that happens in the brain in terms of creativity mind wandering you know darwin my probably my mm -hmm. all-time favorite 
kind of scientist hero, um, you know, being uh, of, of the aristocratic, uh, aristocratic class, he could kind of wander around uh, in the afternoon. He used to do seven, 10 mile walks around his house, 25 wow. years giving birth to this theory. And really the rest that he took was as powerful and important in terms mm. of the answers he came up with um, as, as the work he did. I've heard that about other creatives as well. I think Dickens used to walk a lot. Um, again, to probably oh, Wordsworth. It's yeah, yeah. yeah there's, there's a really good book called Rest, where it looks at all of those people. You know, they, they've got lots and lots of, you know, Einstein as well. There were just lots of spaces where, effectively, because there's the Mind Wandering Network, which is behind our prefrontal cortex, has has got a creative algorithm in it. It smashes together ideas that are quite dissimilar for each to each other and and tries to create novelty and and um kind of new ideas and that algorithm runs in the mind wandering network it also runs in the dreaming network as well you know lots of creatives particularly musicians for example talk about and it's been kind of um explored in neuroscience terms as well if they're struggling with a particular piece um practice and they're finding it very very difficult a good night's sleep and they'll suddenly wake up and they'll find actually they, they've just danced over that piece. It wasn't a problem anymore because there's been some kind of neuro uh, update overnight as the brain has kind of corrected the issues. Um, and so, yeah, there's, there's this, this well of creativity available. That's what I say to my children about sleep. I, I tell them that this is your recharging time. I try and make it a positive thing. You know, when kids say, oh, I don't want to go to bed yet. I go, this is the most important time for you. You're recharging yourself. Your brain is is draining away all the bad stuff that you don't need. And tomorrow you're going to be stronger. You're boosting what's going on. And they, they've really taken that on as as a positive rather than it being oh I don't you know it, it's obviously it's always a little it's always a bit of a struggle but I think if you frame it in a positive way no I think you're yeah. absolutely right you know and that phrase sleep on it exists in most languages because actually we kind of know that you know literally now you could get to a place where if you're really struggling with a problem if you elucidate it clearly write it down mm -hmm. show it to your prefrontal cortex and then let your mind wandering network struck its funky stuff you know those shower moments we have where we go eureka and we claim the answer and we think yeah i've come up with that well actually we have but it's our brain working unconsciously behind the scenes um doing lots of brilliant statistical kind of analysis that has come up with this new idea but actually we could accelerate that process by you know say to your kids if they're really struggling with a particular problem or whatever write it down as a question for their brain and you know I can think of several examples in the last few months where uh, colleagues of mine have come back and said actually I tried that and I got an answer it's amazing how quickly the brain can do it if you if you're really sharp with the question you ask it um, so, for example, give us a give us a problem. Give us a problem that right, a child okay. might have been might have encountered. OK, so oh, I can give you I can give you a problem from a, a student I was working with, a kind of 16 year old that was struggling with um, some some kind of technical issues in terms of how to resolve um, some statistical analysis they were doing in their A-levels. And they were really, really struggling with their statistical analysis. Uh, and they kind of wrote out a question for themselves before they went to bed. Uh, and in the morning, they kind, of, they, they, they kind of had this idea. It was kind of quite sort of, what if I tried it this way, was, the, was the, the way the brain had phrased it. What if I try it this way? And they went and tried it that way and it solved it. It literally solved the problem. Um, and they've done this in laboratories where they've asked, they've given people 
cunning sort of logic puzzles, which take a series of annoying incremental steps to resolve. But there's a secret way of getting to the answer much more quickly. And they've given that problem to people. And then they've given that problem to people over several days. And when people have had the opportunity of sleep between, they arrive at the the solution much more quickly because their brain is coming up with the solution behind the scenes. So there's, you know, there's lots of good science behind this kind of process. Um, And, you know, the other thing that, that our brains are doing when we're sleeping is they're processing emotions as well. And so, you know, we can often come up with solutions to complex emotional situations as our brains are going through that processing of emotion overnight as well. And, you know, I think it, it dives into that whole area of, you know, subconscious and conscious. Uh, you know, I don't think that's that's often quite right to think about. We're probably 95 percent of what our brain does is is un, is not accessible to us. And we live in this little stowaway space. And then we have the audacity to claim that we're doing it all. Uh, we're not. We're, we're receiving the headlines. We're getting the output um, and then we're claiming it as our own. We couldn't cope if we if the other 95 percent came our way anyway, could we? Would it would implode or explode? Exactly. It does it all. You know, I was just thinking this morning as I was doing my mindfulness, like a good little neuro ninja, I was doing my mindfulness this morning and I was thinking about the voice of Andy Puddicombe coming out of Headspace. And I was thinking my brain is doing an incredible set of analysis to this noise that's coming out. It's turning it into language and instruction. And it feels seamless to me. And it's doing a billion, billion calculations a second just to do that. Uh, And, you know, we just don't give it the credit it deserves um, for those amazing things. The fact you open your eyes and you see, my God, you know, the brain has done six, eight months of training when we're first born to just work out edges, lines, shade, all of those things. And, you know, people that have been blind from birth and surgical interventions have enabled their optic nerves to be reconnected. They found when the bandages come off, they can't see straight away. They just see confusing light and it takes their visual circuits several weeks to begin to decode that experience. So they get to have the statistical learning experience that babies have that can never report on uh, because they're babies, but they have that experience live as their brain is beginning to decode all those signals. So you're absolutely right, Julia, it would literally blow our mind if we had access to all that stuff going on. We wouldn't be able to cook our breakfast and get on with our lives we're running out of time and i just there's so many other questions i've got for you giles ask something else well, i was just gonna say one thing i was gonna just say it's not really a question as such but i think like you're talking about doing mindfulness and stuff and like things like headspace these these seems like things that we, t- we need to be a bit kinder to our brains i think we probably abuse our brains more than we should and actually you know getting a good night's sleep and all those sort of things are, are little things that we can do ourselves to be a bit kinder to our brains yeah, exactly. And that's where the 12 rocks are like the centerpiece of neuro ninjahood. So it's basically saying you've got this incredible bit of kit at the top of your neck. You really, really need to look after it. You know, when you get your brand new sparkling Mac, you really look after it and, you know, you you clean it with a wipe and you do all that kind of, you're going to do, you make sure it's charged and all that stuff. But actually, you know, you really, if you really do these 12 rocks of wellbeing, every one of them has an impact on some function in the brain and you will notice combinatorially the impact that has on your productivity your positivity your desire to you know take on challenge and growth so yeah absolutely we should be much kinder to our uh, ourselves actually our brains and and understand that if we're really struggling with something we probably need to rest we certainly don't need to quit we need to rest and come at it again in another way
Andy, if you could um, give us one bit of uh, good advice for parents and their children and how to communicate better with them. As you said, kids most of the time are at home. Uh, If we're working, then we might not always be there for them all of the time. So what do we do? What's the best bit of parenting advice you can you can give us? I think that okay, so that's a uh, that's a really uh, complicated question. I think the the answer um, <laughs> in terms of um, is actually to well, for example, you know, I can think of our busy lives. We're at home. We've got lots of uh, we're trying to work as well. We've got our kids with us. Uh, when when our ch- when our children are worried about something that is tiny in our universe because we've overcome all those things we just need to remember that their prefrontal cortex is pretty new and it hasn't necessarily had all the experiences so we may feel that we're you know we want to make that worry go away from them we want to offer them an instant you know don't be so silly we can sort that out i'm sure they'll have an answer we need to go into that space with the worry and we need to kind of just get them to tip it out so we can explore it explain it and and enable them to to not feel as if that that worry is a, is a silly thing it probably is in comparison with all the things we have to cope with as adults but the way we build our, our neural architecture to cope with complexity is through a careful kind of analysis of what is small things like you know i'm really worried about when i go to secondary school i'm going to get lost and i'm going to be late to a lesson and i'm going to get a detention and it's all going to be awful and mm-hmm. actually you know as a parent you know teachers aren't the the, the dragons that but they perhaps were when we were kids um you know but actually to, to to literally walk the kids through the worry and and come up with solutions and have a rational conversation that says well you know uh, you know, I'm sure this is a problem that, that has occurred up before. Maybe we could ask that question, encouraging them rather than kind of, I think sometimes, and I can certainly think I've done this myself when I'm busy, it's just being in that space with the child and their and their emotions. Because what we want to do as parents is we want to make it better for our kids. And we absolutely, and that's important, but we shouldn't say it's okay. We should say, I can see that it's not okay at the moment. It will be okay. Uh, and, and there's a solution to be found uh, and let's find it together and let's see how we can find that solution. So there's that sense that, you know, that cognitive architecture takes time to get humming, to come up with solutions uh, and 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 that we make that time just not to kind of dismiss the worry, because actually sometimes their pain is suddenly our pain. We don't want them to be in pain. So we try and make it go away and they need to go in the learning journey to enable it to go away. Uh, otherwise and what you see now is lots of young people that are enormously anxious because they haven't had the opportunity perhaps to manage those risks themselves because their parents Mm. sort you know think about uh free play the reduction in free play um for young people over the last 20 or 30 years there's a fascinating book by jonathan height um called the coddling of the american mind where it just sees how you know protecting children so much that they've not been able to make risk assessments themselves, engage in um, more complex and risky activities because they've been protected from them. They then don't have the opportunity to grow the architecture, the decision-making machinery to enable them to do that. So sorry, that wasn't a pithy response, but basically to be in the moment with the worry. Very good one, though. Very good one, though. It's it, it, there is no there is no quick fix out of a problem, is there? And and you need to teach your children emotional intelligence. Yeah, exactly. And that actually, however upsetting the emotion is and however it might be wrong headed as well, because, you know, emotions are very fast, but they can be inaccurate. They give us a general impression. 
that whatever the emotion is flagging, there's some something of significance for you. And then we need to have a moment to kind of, you know, and if it can't be now, we're going to write it down. We're going to talk about it. We're going to we're going to discuss it. And that's why, you know, rock seven walking outside is so useful. Take your kids on walks and just talk it all around. Um, you know, that's one of the things that I, I'd really like to keep out of lockdown. Families going for long walks together mm. and chewing stuff over. Mm. Andrew, it's been no, as I was say, Andrew, it's been incredibly fascinating to, talking to you. We, we feel like I've, we've covered so much, but yet we've really only sort of scratched the surface on all, all these subjects. So it's um, it's been absolutely fascinating. Um, before we go, we we have a thing called the Happy Jar on this podcast, um, where we we put in three things that are special to you. Um, that we can share. We're going to probably do a, an episode where we share some of these things with all from all our guests and all the episodes so far. So I know I sort of pre-warned you slightly about it, but yeah, if you've got three things that um, that are special but, to you, you'd like to put in our happy jar. Yeah. So I mean, I th- I think the things that I would say are actually um, all about noticing some things that actually are around us all the time. So let's just talk about pets for a second and. Actually, you know, we've got two Labradors and, uh, you know, at, so that the happiness that, that is provided by pets is is not simply the kind of owning of a pet and that kind of relationship. But there's a kind of physiological connection with a pet as well in terms of uh, they they reduce the, um, the kind of stress by increasing the level of a, a, a chemical called oxytocin that we produce. So really enjoying your uh, your pet you know they can be really annoying sometimes can't they but just really enjoying that relationship with your your animal uh stroking your pets taking them for walks enjoying that literally lowers your blood pressure it literally reduces your heart rate and it helps your body manage its blood sugar as well it turns on uh, the parasympathetic nervous system so enjoy your pets engage with your so in my my annoying my mad labrador poppy she often is very annoying the way she gets very stressed about other dogs and things but actually enjoying uh pets is is, a, is one thing bird song i would say poppy we're gonna put poppy in the jar we're gonna say yeah. that we're gonna say poppy the labrador's going in yeah poppy the labrador put her in i'd say bird song actually uh put bird song in there because you know that is Birdsong is amazing. And what I love about birdsong is this gorgeous bit of biology. So, you know, we look at flowers and we think they're pretty, but actually they're not even those colours. They're designed for bees and the smells designed for bees as well. It's nothing to do with us. But uh, And birdsong is exactly the same. It's this beautiful thing. We think that's so beautiful, but they're swearing at each other. They're having a right old pop at each other. They're saying, sod off, get out of my space. And I, I so I love that kind of, that, the, you know, the, the kind of the, the beauty of birdsong. But actually, that it's conveying a completely different message to to birds than the one that we're receiving. So we're kind of in, enjoying that. And then in in an, another kind of um, in term cake, I think it's got to be cake. I'm afraid, Mrs. Wright's um, uh, maple chocolate and, well, chocolate cake is awesome actually. But the maple and pecan with um, cream cheese frosting Ooh. is just very um, nice. Oh. And, and 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 the kind of the associated conversation so you know there's a whole ritual around the cake now which is like a big long walk beforehand so it gives you lots of anticipation time then there's the kind of cup of tea being made and then there's the sitting outside and having a chat so yeah i'd say that's a lot of rocks in there that's not good on rock three healthy eating but it is quite good on um walking outside in nature and connecting meaningfully with family and friends so yeah cake um cake i like that oh yeah 
Cake. Cake. <laughs> Labrador's cakes and birds. There we go. Wonderful. Yeah. What a what a what a nice entry into the happy jar. Yeah, thank you, Andrew. And where can our listeners find out more about Neuro Ninjas? Yeah, so the easiest place to go is probably our website. So it's uh, actionyourpotential.org. And just find us on Twitter, Action Your Potential, and you'll see us. We're busy, busy. We're just fascinated by brains. We share your enthusiasms for all the things that you want to do with your amazing brains. And our mission is to try and help you understand it enough so you can get everything out of it. Because we've got such a short trip, haven't we? Hopefully, with a bit of luck, 100 years maybe. Mm -hmm. uh, And therefore, we need to make sure every day counts. And so, yeah, uh, that's where they can find out about us. Fantastic. Andrew Wright, incredibly positive. Wonderful to talk to you. And we'll definitely have you back because I think we can do a whole other session. Definitely. I'd love to do that. That would be lovely. It's been lovely to chat with you. It's been great. Thank you. You too. Thanks for coming on A Little Bit of Positive. Wow, Julia, that was Andrew Wright. What a fantastic guest. I mean, we could have talked for hours and hours about all these different things. And I know you sort of alluded to maybe getting him on again at some point because... There was so much we didn't cover, I think even though we covered loads. Yeah, I think he'd be great. I think what we should do is we should do a whole session where we do a, a, a do his 12 rock um, cognitive health yes. thing and we talk through those. It's like this is how we should all get through every single day and he could talk us through it, those 12 steps um, and why they're so important and, and that would be a brilliant episode. Yeah. Kind of covered this on with Anita Koshaw and we did with Caroline Millington as well. These ideas of putting in things in place that we do regularly, mm. routines that can really help us, you know, so much every day. For for Andrew, it was about being kinder to our brains, being kinder to ourselves. And it makes such a massive impact on ourselves, doesn't it? Yeah. And something he said that um I think will help people get into the exercise thing. I know that exercise is a big problem for some people that they, mm. it's a stumbling block. They, they can't, they think, Oh, I'm going to have to start exercising, you know, an hour every day and I haven't got the time. Mm. And, and you, you know, you put things in your way, don't you to do that. And, and I would say to anybody, if, if you, if you're not getting regular exercise, start small, because I think if you think yeah. to yourself, you've got to do half an hour every day and you've got to do, you know, you should be doing four hours every week. If you, that could be the stumbling block that will stop you from ever starting. Start with 10 minutes. Start with yeah. just doing 10 minutes, a 10 minute walk, um, you know, 10 minutes working out on your carpet, whatever it is, start small and you will, you will build up before you know it. And the interesting thing he said is that that thing that I picked picked up on him, Exercise grows brain cells. So you're yeah. not just staying physically healthy by exercising. You're not just helping with your weight. You're not just helping with your physical health. You are, and it's not just helping with your mental health. It is growing brain cells. I'm going to tell my kids that. Yeah, I was absolutely fascinated by that bit when he was talking about that because it's just never, it's never, I've never heard that before. No. It was really kind of a, yeah. I mean, I've heard. Revolutionary moment. Yeah, I've me, heard yeah. people, I've, I have heard people talking about, you know, it elongates your life and how good it is for, you know, your oxygen levels. And But to mm. hear it said like that, and of course, he's the, he's the brain, the brain nerd, he's the neuro ninja. He yeah. would, of course, take it all back to your brains, but it grows brain cells. It's like, wow, yes, it does. Yeah. Yeah, it's and a, you know think we can we we can we we have the ability to do that ourselves. And do you know what? Just on that on that it. on that note, I'm going to go and grow some brain cells. I need to do it. <laughs> I it's been gorgeous doing our podcasts today, but I need to get outside and I need to grow some brain cells. Me 
Me too. I'm very up for growing some brain cells right now. I'm going to try and get my family to grow some of their brain cells too. Let's do it. 